Hello, everyone. You've got Opposing the Matrix. Today is the 27th of November, 2019, uh, approximately uh, real close to 4 o'clock in the afternoon in, in real American time. Um, we have Ralph Epperson with us, <clears throat> and uh, he's wearing his Arizona hat, and I couldn't find my... my uh, yeah, I couldn't find my University of Oregon hat, so next best thing, I got my Mets hat on. So, And I know Ralph loves the Mets, so um, I'm doing it in honor of him. So anyway, <laughs> tonight, uh, last week we uh, we uh, talked about the New World Order, and uh, and that was followed up by a two-hour presentation of uh, two hours of three hours and 27 minutes. And tonight will be the other hour and 27 minutes, along with another of Ralph's um, videos uh, and, and lessons, the uh, the lion's paw, Satan's symbol in the world. So, um, Ralph, why don't, why don't you explain, uh, you wanted to read something about uh, Thanksgiving and also about uh, that that fellow, uh, that London. Um, Sergey Nietzsche, oh. yes. Right. Both of these are going to be covered in the thing, but I think it's important. The first one, I don't think it's covered that we're going to talk about the real reason for Thanksgiving. There's a very important, distinct uh, uh, story there that the average American has probably never heard, and it's very applicable to what's happening in America today, as you're going to hear. And it, it's in this book called Two Worlds that I read probably way back in the 70s or 80s. Uh, there it is. Now, this thing was put together in a film strip. Uh, and it actually won a big national prize because it was uh, some great work at whoever gave it. And so I got it and read it. And boy, there's a there's a lesson in here about the uh, pilgrims and how why they celebrated Thanksgiving and why we should listen to what, what happened to them because uh, they experienced the joys of socialism and there was starvation. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's... Begin our study of Plymouth Rock and Jamestown. 102 pilgrims from England reached what was to be called Plymouth Colony in December of 1620. By common consent, the colonists' economic system was communal. Hold on. The land and property were owned, in effect, by the colony's government. People worked together uh, of Assigned, I can't read the word, it looks like, uh, it's kind of blurred, like covered up, okay. They worked together at, at assigned uh, tasks. They shared and shared alike in the total production of the colony. There was a common storehouse. Every family brought all that it produced to the storehouse. The government of the colony divided the goods on the basis of equal shares for all. What a paradise. The less industrious discovered that no matter how little they produced and brought to the common storehouse, they still received an equal share with their neighbors. They began to loaf. They didn't do their share. The industrious, seeing that they were being made to support the loafers, began to slow down also. In due time, Starvation threatened to wipe out the colonists. The governmental and religious leaders proposed the idea of private property and the principle of self-reliance. Every able-bodied man was to become responsible for himself and his family. 
the government-owned farmlands and pastures would be divided up for each private ownership. That's the story. Oh, here, here's, the, here's what happened. William Bradford, who was the governor, said this. He wrote in his diary, When the system of private ownership was established and self-reliance became the rule, the housewife came out of her kitchen and the children gave up some of their playtime to work and in the fields so the family could produce more and have more and live better. Wow. Okay, that's what happened at the, uh, I was, that was Plymouth Rock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Plymouth mm -hmm. Rock. So okay. they started out socialism and then went to capitalism. But notice, let's just add a comment or two. These were Christians who were taught to love your neighbors, you love yourself. They wanted to help these people. So they came up with this brilliant idea. We'll share the land equally. We'll all work together because we all love each other. And we'll put the stuff in the common storehouse and you'll decide how much you need. And you can take it out and you can eat and prosper. It's going to work and then it didn't work. This was voluntary. Ocasio-Cortez is not making it voluntary. She's going to force us into the communal system. Okay, right. here's, here's, I got confused. This is where it says, it continues. We're about halfway through. That which happened at Plymouth Rock had also happened at Jamestown 12 years earlier. A communal economic system was established at Jamestown. Yet, yes, with a common storehouse and equal shares for all. It failed miserably just as it did at Plymouth. At Jamestown, the guy, the uh, produced just, oh, they, they, they produced, I'm sorry, they produced just as surely towards starvation. Finally, as at Plymouth, they established the idea of private property and individual responsibility. From that point on, the colony was on the road to success. Captain John Smith, who was the governor at the time, wrote in his diary, after starvation had been averted by the change to private ownership and individual responsibility. When our, quote now, when our people were fed out of the common storehouse and labored jointly together, glad was he who could slip away from his labor or slumber over his task. He cared not, presuming that howsoever the harvest prospered, the general storehouse must maintain him. Even the most honest among them would hardly take so much true pains in a week under the public ownership and common storehouse system, as now for themselves they will do in a day. Now here's the key. So that we reaped not so much corn from the labor of 30 as now three or four will provide for themselves. It outproduced the communal system eight to one. Wow. Ocasio, are you listening? They tried it voluntarily and it didn't work. And here's the last paragraph. So at both Jamestown and Plymouth colonies, it was historically demonstrated that man does not work to the fullest of his abilities without the incentive given him by private ownership. The incentive of personal profit. It right. was just demonstrated 
that so long as there was a common storehouse to depend upon, individual effort withers, production fails, starvation approaches. And this was true even among these early good Christians, as both Captain Smith and Governor Bradford recorded. Mm. Did you get the lesson or not? Yes. Now what happened was, after they learned this, there was prosperity. So they invited the Indians to come to a Thanksgiving. So God had provided for them by teaching them about the free enterprise system and each family producing for the family. And when that happened, even the kids came up because then they would get fed and they could get, didn't have to eat, you know, foot, little food or not, no food at all because of starvation. In fact, wow. I, I, would, I don't have the figures, but it was high. It took them a while to figure it out. And finally they decided. Ocasio, Smoyer, Cordy, whatever your name is. All right, Bernie Sanders, are you listening? I'm telling you, we already tried it in America and it doesn't work. Socialism or and or communism doesn't work because there's no incentive to produce. And right. man will not produce when he's forced to produce. Is that you know, Ralph, even in, yeah, it is a truism. It is. Even in a church, you know, they have something, we have something called the, the 95-5 principle. 5% of the people do 95% of the work. Yeah. You know, a lot of people just like the, they're, they're fulfilling a Sunday obligation and just coming and sitting there and, and then going home and doing nothing. So, but, you know, who, who makes the bulletins? Who, who prepares for the worship? Who, you know, it does everything else. It's the, it's five percent of the people that do ninety-five percent of the work. So the ninety-five-five principle, they call it. I've never heard that, but it sure makes sense. I know that I've been in many Christian churches where there's only a small few that, when it comes time for a, uh, what do they call it? Uh, 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 they, they, we have a, we, they get the hall open and put tables up and everybody brings their food or share. Oh, a buffet or something, yeah. There's a word for it. Potluck. Potluck. That's a potluck. Yeah. So then even then, it's only a, a small percentage that uh, bring the food. But I want, I want to make sure you understand, this is the reason we celebrate in America the, the, the prosperity proven to work when you allow the family to keep that which he produces and then sell it in the open market for the, for making a profit. Well, profit's bad. We don't like, oh yes we do. The pilgrims in the first communal system didn't believe in profits. They took what they needed and after a while they stopped working, preferring to go, as I said to you a few minutes ago, go sit on the side of the hill and play the flute for four hours. Yeah, let the other guy do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now that's the first lesson. That, that, I don't think I covered that in, the thing, in my DVD, but this this one we did. This is in the New World Order book. Right. You know, read this book. You already know this story. But if you don't know this story, you need to know this story because this is what socialism breeds on. We're going to talk about a terrible uh, man who came up with the theory. Uh, here I got a divide. Here he is. Uh, Sergei Netsyev, mm -hmm. best studied by, uh, illustrated by studying the writings of Sergei Netsyev, the Russian revolutionary. This young man had an enormous influence on the outcome of the Russian Bolshevik Communist Revolution of 1917 and the resulting deaths of approximately 40 million people. 
40 million people. One man gave that impetus to one man, and 42 million people die of 40 million. Keep, keep reading. Here's what he wrote. Yeah. He's a revolutionary. Our cause is terrible, complete, universal, and pitiless destruction. Let us unite with the savage criminal world, these true and only revolutionaries of Russia. The revolutionary is a doomed man. He has no personal interests, no business affairs, no emotions, no attachments, no property, and no name. Everything in him is wholly absorbed in the single thought and the single passion for revolution. The revolutionary knows he's broken all bonds with, which tie him to social order and the civilized world with all of its laws, moralities, and customs, and with its generally accepted conventions. The object is perpetually the same, and with its generally accepted conventions. The object is perpetually the same, the surest and quickest way of destroying the whole filthy order. The revolutionary despises and hates the existing social morality, for him, morality is everything which contributes to the triumph of the revolution. Immoral and criminal is everything that stands in his way. The revolutionary must be tyrannical towards others. All, of, all the gentle and uh, enervating sentiments of kinship, love, friendship, gratitude, and even honor must be suppressed in him and give place to the cold and single-minded passions for revolution. Do not pity, kill in public places. If these base rascals dare to enter there, kill them in houses, kill them in villages. Remember, those who will not side with us will be against us. Whoever is against us is our enemy, and we must destroy enemies by all means. Lenin read Nietzscheyev, and I think I quoted it in here, he said, he said, once he read Nietzscheyev, he realized how to impose communism on the people in Russia, and 40 million people died. Bernie are you listening? This is what happens. Mr. Adolf Hitler was a socialist, and he decided to give Germany socialism. And to create the master race, he killed multiple millions of Germans with that stupid war of his. And 53 million people died because of socialism. Are you listening, Bernie? Are you listening to this? Whatever your name, Ocasio, are you listening? Do you understand how it doesn't work and will never work? It's failing even in, in Venezuela, where they were once the highest Latin American civilization of all of Latin America, and now they're, the rich and people are leaving by the droves, and they're starving because of socialism. Mm -hmm. That's right. What else can you say? You're going to the people will turn. 
they're already doing it. They're, the college kids are stopping students who want to go in to hear a speech. They won't let them do it, and then they kick them and beat them down, spray them with stuff, and hit them and uh, throw fences into buildings, etc. This is what's happening in America. NetJF is being listened to. That's right. That's right. So you're going man, to see oh, it written on the screen later on, but I want to lay the foundation so when you hear it, grasp what he's telling you. And what Lenin meant when he said when he saw this, he knew how to impose communism on the Russian people. Butcher, kill him. And he killed up to 40 million people. Yeah, that's a shame. It really is. <clears throat> you know, it's the same with, uh, with uh, China. I think millions of people, tens of millions of people were killed there. Up to 60 million, yes. Yeah, and then uh, Castro and Cuba and and everywhere else, too. Everywhere that 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 the system is uh, implemented or is attempted to be implemented, a lot of people die, unfortunately. The reason we're free in America, basically, let's start with that, because it's not totally free. But the reason we're free is we respect the right to private property of everybody. We don't steal right. We don't murder. We don't steal their wives and commit adultery uh, with with our wives because we commit to uh, till death do us part. And this is what they said. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Tocqueville said in like 1740. He said, "America is great because America is good." When America ceases to be great, America uh, ceases to be good. America will no longer be great. Right. Do you understand? That's a prophetic word right there. But these things are out there, but we're not teaching it to our young people except some guy named Everson and others who are writing the same thing. Mm -hmm. We figured it out and we've made it a public. The Unseen Hand is still the classic book. Um, I got a a message. No, I read a message from Fritz Springfire. He said that he's read The Unseen Head over and over and over. He said, it's a classic. He said, if, if he hadn't written it, I would have written it myself. Wow. So I, I, please continue promoting it. Keep reading it, The Unseen Head. It's still, I still put it on the Internet. I mean, I make I send it in. The people send it in and ask you to read it. They recommend it. Get the book and read it. You'll read these quotes, some of these quotes I've talked about. I think I probably did quote that two worlds book in the unseen hand because it shows how it doesn't work even voluntarily it doesn't work mm-hmm. and they force it the reason that's coming the reason they built the berlin wall the russian communists did was because the middle class were leaving they, they kept right. working but they didn't get the results of their work so they said like the, like the, the bradford said the, the loafers decided not to work anymore so the middle right. class says, I'm not working. And once again, production goes down. And where there's nothing to produce, there's nothing is produced, there's nothing to eat. Mm-hmm. Now, one more truism and we'll end. People, all people, men, women, children, blacks, whites, homosexuals, lesbians, we're all, all, all created hungry. We need to eat. So we need to create a system that has production for everybody. The system of building a storehouse doesn't 
work. We've right. already tried it, and there was starvation, just like in Venezuela, just like in China, just like in Russia. It doesn't work. And if we buy Bernie Sanders or Casio, we're going to get the same results. Millions of people will starve in America. That's right. You know, Ralph, I was working um, several years ago, about the, the same time Obama got elected, and uh, there's a little guy that he was from Belarus, and he had come to this country, and he was working as a delivery driver, so he was delivering stuff to our pharmacy. And um, it was the day after the election, and I said, how are you doing? And he didn't look too well. It looked like he was kind of downcast. Yeah. He says, you know, he says, I escaped from Belarus to come here to be free. He says, and this morning I opened up the paper, and now this. I know. Oh, man, what a story. You there know? was a woman. I'm sure. Go ahead. No, no, it's a, but um, uh, there, there was another um, uh, story I was going to tell, too, but I can't. It, it's escapes me right now. But, you know, all these people, they come here because it's the greatest place in the world, you know, and then so but it's being turned into the um, the dung heap that yeah. they actually came from. You know? they used to, there was a woman uh, many years ago, I'm sure she's gone now, because she was probably in the 60s when she was talking. She said she went to uh, the German under uh, Hitler, and she fled. And she came to America, and was started, she started to see it happening here. So she went out on her own and started speaking across the country and uh, telling American people, do you understand? I lived under it in Germany. I saw what happened in Germany, it's happening right now in America. I'm telling you, you've got to stop this, or it's going to result with the same result. Millions of people are going to die. Right. And so they didn't listen. And they, well, I can't go back to the Super Bowl. It's far more important to watch the Super Bowl. I, I boot the, boot for the, well, uh, you know, people who are uh, live in God's country in Arizona, we know who to root for, the Arizona Wildcats. Uh, uh, so uh, we know, see. Some yeah, people. well, so that's the effect of too much sun, I think. But uh, <laughs> listen, listen. what about Ralph? What about the uh, lion's paw? We're going to do that well, too. Yes, very good. That, well, there, of course, I covered it up. There was a, I think there was one thing I wanted to mention. Oh, I do quote Nietzsche in here. That's where it is. It's also quoted in uh, the lion's paw. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, well, whatever it was that I was going to talk about is escapes me. Uh, well, it's just got the system. The reason this is current, forgive me, this is the way I mark details. It's my writing. This is my master of the DVD I make copies from. So it tells you second edition and when it was and things on it. But there's a, uh, a comment in here. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, the reason it's current is that during the, de the debates when Cruz and the other 10 or 12, 20, wherever it was, Republicans were running, uh, they, uh, they had the debates, like four or five of them, and twice during two of the debates, uh, uh, Ted Cruz gave a symbol. I, I had to stand up, and he goes like this. Here's his coat. He put his hand inside his coat like this, and he's stand there, he's standing there like this, and uh, this, there's his coat. He's in, he did it twice in a row. Now, it wasn't a fluke because I show a picture of him, Doing it the right way, with the Pledge of Allegiance or the song America, wherever it was, National Anthem, 
Okay, we all go like this with our arms sitting against each other, my hand over my heart, the palm over the heart. And so we all did that, and Cruz did it, so he knew that was the way to do it. But twice he did this. He gave the lion's paw. And once you find out what it means, you're going to be shocked, because Ted Cruz is a major senator. Still, he's, it was one of, we saw him during these hearings or something, and he's still alive and talking and writing and still a senator. The man's gave us a symbol that he's an initiate of the ancient mystery religion of Lucifer Satan worship, Ted Cruz. Right. Texas. Right. And I said, oh, Ralph, wait till you see the evidence I've accumulated. That's what this is for. Just sit back and relax. You're going to see some people you've never heard of giving this sign. I mean, people you've heard of them giving this sign. Where do you see it? It's incredible. They're doing it, spitting in our faces. Yeah. Best comment. Khrushchev once said, we spit in the faces of the Americans, and they think it's due. Oh, boy. It's not due, guys. They're spitting in our faces. Ted Cruz was spitting in our faces, saying, you don't know what it is, but I'm doing it to tell the others I'm one of them. Yeah. You know, Ralph, as real quick before we, uh, we, we move into the video... Um, I did a little study on Ted Cruz, and uh, his father is actually Ted's first name is Raphael. Okay, and his father is Raphael Senior, but uh, Ted Cruz's father proclaimed Ted Cruz to be basically the Messiah that was going to oh. pull this country out of the out of the uh, the doom that it was heading toward, and. Um, a couple of other people that endorsed Ted Cruz was uh, one of them was. Uh, Rick Joyner, who, if he's a prophet, then uh, the GMO food is good for you. Um, but uh, another one was uh, the guy with the glasses, uh, the Mormon that does the reports. Uh, I can't remember his name right now. But anyway, there's something called the Mormon uh, white horse prophecy that says that when, um, when the country is hanging by a thread, the Constitution is hanging by a thread, that a Mormon will come and rescue the country. So, um, oh, I can't remember his name. White, what? You know, white hair. He he um, he, t- he turned to Mormonism. He uh, oh, I can't remember. But anyway, um, he endorsed Ted Cruz too. Now, when so when you have Mormons endorsing supposedly Christians, yeah. and Christians endorsing a Mormon prophecy, they've got a lot of problems right there. That's you know, let me if I may, can, can I contribute to that? That's oh not, yes, I want you to. Yeah. Let me tell you this: it's worse than that. It wasn't. Uh, it was not some prophet. It was Joseph Smith himself. Right. Prophet. He said that in the future the Constitution would hang by a thread, and the Mormon right. elders, not one man on a horse, the Mormon elders would rise up to save the country. Uh-huh. But Ralph Jefferson has discovered. The Constitution is not hanging by a thread. It's been replaced. Right. It's gone. It's dead. We're living under the Uniform Commercial Code. If you want the documentation, it's ample throughout all of my material. Uh, not maybe all of it, but a lot of it. America's Secret Destiny, I think, covers it. The Constitution is dead. It's gone. It doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. We're living under the Uniform Commercial Code, and I can prove it. It's a matter of proof. So it's too late, Mormons. You, you, it was hanging by a thread, and you Mormons didn't rise up to save this country. 
So you're going to rise up to nothing. It's over. We lost it. Your right. prophet was no prophet. That's right. By the way, that guy's name is Glenn Beck. I just remembered. Oh, Glenn Beck, yes. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So, okay, folks. Well, we're going to move into the video. So you're going to watch an hour and 27 minutes, roughly, of uh, the New World Order. And then an hour and ten minutes of Satan's, uh, excuse me, the lion's paw, Satan's symbol in the world. So, Ralph, uh, I want to thank you again, as always. Uh, you're a gentleman and a scholar, and I mean that in every sense of the word, or those words. And uh, I just thank you for, for what you're doing and how you're trying to educate people and wake them up. Thank you. You know, well, you're an that's ensign. That's my whole mission, uh, David. And I, once again, I always thank you for the... Uh, Yeah, that's true. Don't huh? get into that because that's, that's scary when you start thinking about what do the Democrats want. They want a coup because they know the I'm sorry, they know the Constitution is not important. That's a study for another day. Let's go yeah. back. Let's get back to these two DVDs. And may I wish you and your family uh, a blessed Thanksgiving. And perhaps you can remember uh, the lesson we learned from the book called Two Worlds about what happens when you go to the communism uh, system of socialism. It doesn't work. And that's why we had a Thanksgiving. There was abundance. God gave us the solution, the free enterprise system. Amen and amen. Okay, Ralph, thanks. We're going to start right now, folks. Inflation of the money supply will lead to a single banking system. This has not occurred as of yet, but there is centralized control of the central banks, including America's central bank, the privately owned Federal Reserve, by the international network described by Dr. Carol Quigley. May I suggest that you consider watching my two-hour DVD entitled Abolish the Federal Reserve, and you will learn the names of the 12 banking families that control all of the world's central banks. Taxes would become progressive, meaning that the middle and higher income families will be taxed to a higher degree so that few could assemble wealth. You might remember that one of Barack Obama's campaign proposals was to tax those who earn more than $250,000 with a larger percentage than they are currently paying. Uh, uh, <laughs> apparently, Barack Obama does not know that many of the very wealthy in America have tax, uh, notice tax, tax-free foundations. So his proposal would not affect them because they pay no taxes at all. The late Senator Teddy Kennedy, certainly a proponent of big government, strangely had a tax-free foundation. He somehow didn't mind passing taxes on to you that he did not have to pay himself. Here's a question for you. Could tax-free foundations be the reason 
the very wealthy donate huge sums to the presidential candidates? <laughs> of course not. Who would even suggest such a thing? <laughs> I would. I would over here. I would. I think it would be appropriate at this point to discuss just what it is that Barack Obama is proposing and where the idea comes from. This is a sample of a graduate income tax table that I found on the Internet. It might not be real, but it's sure, it certainly can illustrate just how this thing works. You will notice that as a person's income rises, he pays a higher percentage of his income to the government in the form of taxes. For example, a man who earns less than $17,000 pays a tax of 10%, but a person who earns over $375,000 pays a tax of 35%. This is what Barack Obama wants to create in the United States. The risk pay a higher percentage, in fact, even a higher percentage under his plan of their income in taxes. Uh, but listen, I'm sorry, Barack, baby. The president is not the originator of a graduated income tax. This idea is at least 184 years old. This is Karl Marx, the so-called father of communism, and he's the modern source of the graduated income tax. This is how he put it in his book entitled The Communist Manifesto, written in 1848. He discussed ways he could destroy a capitalist country to convert it to a communist country. He provided a platform of ten planks, and I wish only to describe or to discuss one of them. In the most advanced countries, the following ten planks will be pretty generally applicable. And the second plank was a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. He summarized the reason why he wanted to tax the very wealthy in his criticism of the Gotha program written in 1875. This is the very essence of the communist philosophy. From each, according to his abilities, to each, according to his needs. So the communist vision is to use government to take from the rich to give to the poor. And this is the vision of Barack Obama's support of a progressive graduated income tax meaning he favors the communist proposal of using government to take from one who has earned it and give it to someone who has not earned it. You might remember the conversation he had with someone who has been called Joe the Plumber during the 2008 presidential campaign. I think when you spread the wealth around, it's good for everybody. Now, I will ask you this. What is the difference between these two philosophies? Karl Marx wrote from each to each, and Barack Obama says spread the wealth around. And I would think you would have to agree there's no difference. Both take from one to give to another by the use of government force. You know something, uh, years ago I remember someone teaching me two things. Thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's goods. Well, those sounds, sound pretty religious, and they're certainly obsolete. 
because they're not pertinent to today's modern civilization. This is a little article that showed up in my local newspaper in 2008. It reported that a 25-year-old man had been sentenced to prison for using the Internet to steal more than $1 million from a list of the Forbes 400 wealthy Americans. Now, the article didn't say it, but he was only doing what Barack Obama is proposing to the American people. He's using the Internet to take from the rich to give to the poor, uh, in this case meaning him. He was tried and convicted of stealing. The sentence marked in yellow by the red there, there says he was based in Moscow, Russia. One can only presume that he also believed in the Marxist communist philosophy. When you spread the wealth around, it's good for everybody. If I had been his attorney, and I'm not an attorney, I would have urged him to take the Obama plea. I demand justice. I was only doing what Barack Obama said I should do. I'm spreading the wealth around, and it's good for everybody, meaning me. Equal justice under the law means that all persons guilty of the same crime must be punished equally. But he's in prison, and Barack Obama is seeking re-election. One of the reasons the government of the United States was created was to protect property from thieves and from invading armies. And the reason that was so is because of the teachings of the Ten Commandments passed down to Moses many centuries before. As I said, two of these commandments are appropriate to the point I'm now trying to make. The Tenth Commandment is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. And the eighth one is that, Thou shalt not steal. Now, this is an actual photograph of an armed robbery taken off the Internet, and it shows a single robber using a gun to steal from a convenience store. Now, why did this individual steal? First of all, he coveted his neighbor's goods, believing that the store owner had more than he, and he had little or none. So he decided to steal from the store owner because he believed that Barack Obama was right. Spreading the wealth around is good for everyone. And let's ask the question again. What's the difference between these two acts? The robber wants to share the wealth by stealing the store owner's wealth, and Barack Obama wants to share the wealth by using government to steal from the wealthy. Yet the robber is caught, and he goes to jail, and Barack Obama remains president of the United States. Something is wrong in America. When the government can steal legally from the wealthy, but the robber who steals from the wealthy goes to jail. One of the first books I read on the subject of government and why this process of sharing the wealth was wrong was this one entitled The Law, written in 1850 by Frederick Bastier, a French economist, statesman, and author. It is probably the greatest little booklet ever written on the subject because it warns nations about what this concept leads to. This is what he wrote. How is the legal plunder to be identified? Quite simply, 
See if the law takes from some persons what belongs to them and gives it to other persons to whom it does not belong. When a portion of the wealth is transferred from the person who owns it without its consent and whether by force or fraud to anyone who does not own it, then I say that property is violated, that an, that an act of plunder is committed. Then abolish this law without delay. If such a law is not abolished immediately, it will spread, multiply, and develop into a system. Well said, Mr. Bastier. We did not abolish it when it first reared its ugly head, and it has developed into a system. America, it's time to stop legal plunder. End of part two. Please go to part three. Part three. Now let me return once more to the thoughts of Dr. Richard L. Day. Private ownership of housing would cease. High costs of housing would prevent new purchasers from buying homes. Now the, <laughs> the house that I purchased in 1976 was selling for around $40,000, and today a similar house would cost $200,000. And that is happening exactly as Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto said it must happen. This is what he wrote. The theory of the Communist may be summed up in a single sentence. Abolition of private property. And Dr. Day said that he had learned that the private ownership of housing would cease. And we see that this is occurring just as the Communists want in the recession of 2008 and 2012. This is a common sight across America today, foreclosed houses where the owner more than likely lost his job and fell behind in his house payments. If Karl Marx was alive in 2012, he would be smiling because one of his goals is being met here in America just as planned. There was someone else who spoke about property just a few years later, and that was President Abraham Lincoln. His collected works show that these were his words on March the 21st, 1864. Property is the fruit of labor. It is a positive good in the world. That some should be rich, shows that others may become rich. And hence, is just encouragement to industry and enterprise. Let not him who is houseless pull down the house of another, but let him work diligently and build one for himself. Thus, by example, assuring that his own shall be safe from violence when built. 
This is obviously the exact opposite of what Karl Marx said. And I would dare say that Abraham Lincoln was closer to the truth than Karl Marx. <laughs> Are you listening, Barack Obama? One more thing that is happening in America would also cause Karl Marx to smile if he were alive today. And that is this, quote, recession, end quote, we are in, because it was planned as well. I would now like to submit a poor quality copy of a cartoon that appeared in the Chicago Tribune newspaper on April the 21st, 1934. This was right in the middle of the Great Depression of 1929 caused by the Federal Reserve. If that startled you that I claim that the Great Depression was created by the Federal Reserve, may I suggest that you consider watching my two-hour DVD entitled Abolish the Federal Reserve for the details on how they accomplished that. This is once again the entire cartoon, and I would like to point out two parts of it to you. The first is this figure in the lower left-hand side of the cartoon. It appears as if the cartoonist was drawing a cartoon figure of Leon Trotsky, one of the major communists in the Russian Marxist Revolution of 1917 through about 1923. I've included a picture of Mr. Trotsky to show you that it appears as if the cartoonist was drawing him into the cartoon. You will notice that the cartoon figure of Trotsky has just finished lettering on this huge board, and the words are describing the communist plan for the United States. It reads, spend, spend, spend under the guise of recovery. Bust the government, blame the capitalists for the failure, junk the Constitution, and declare a dictatorship. I would think it is fair to say that with the exception of the dictatorship, this recession of 2008 is performing exactly as the communist Trotsky is describing as the plan for a Marxist communist America. Please notice that the cartoonist has added this comment to the upper left of the big board. He says, it, meaning this plan, worked in Russia. The second figure appears to be a cartoon of Joseph Stalin, the brutal communist dictator of Russia. Notice that he is saying how red, meaning communist, the sunrise is getting. In other words, how red America is becoming as they follow the plan of Leon Trotsky, a Marxist communist. Let me repeat what Trotsky wrote as a plan of action for the United States. Spend, spend, spend under the guise of recovery. Bust the government. Blame the capitalists for the failure. Junk the Constitution and declare a dictatorship. And the plan of action is happening exactly as the Marxist communist Trotsky was predicting. By the way, the crash of 1929 was the second of two major depressions that have occurred after the Federal Reserve was created in 1913. There was also a depression of 1920. When I was in college studying business, we discussed the crash of 1929, but we never discussed the depression of 1920, and there is a major reason why we did not. 
This is the fall 2009 edition of the Intercollegiate Review, described as a journal of scholarship and opinion, and one of its articles discussed the Depression of 1920. This is that article entitled Warren Harding, the President of the United States, elected in 1920, and the Forgotten Depression of 1920. I would like to quote four short paragraphs taken from that article. The economic situation in 1920 was grim. By that year, unemployment had jumped from 4% to nearly 12%, and the gross national product declined by 17%. In his 1920 speech, accepting the Republican presidential nomination, Harding declared, We will strike at government borrowing, which enlarges the evil, and we will attack the high cost of government with every energy and facility which attend Republican capacity. We promise that relief which will attend the halting of waste and extravagance because it will be an example to stimulate thrift and economy in private life. Instead of fiscal stimulus, which means borrowing the money from the Federal Reserve as a way of trying to stimulate the economy with the creation of jobs. Harding cut the government's budget nearly in half between 1920 and 1922. Tax rates were slashed for all income groups, meaning that it opened up spending for those who had earned it, and the national debt was reduced by one-third. By the late summer of 1921, only a few months after Harding was inaugurated, signs of recovery were already visible. The following year, meaning 1921, unemployment was back down to 6.7% and was only 2.4% by 1923. Now you know why the Depression of 1920 has been forgotten. Harding did exactly the opposite of what Barack Obama has done for nearly four years. Now ask yourself, how come President Obama is not following the sterling example of President Harding? Harding solved a major depression in less than a year. And Obama has not had any effect on the recession of 2008 in four years. And this has been the result, foreclosures and the loss of jobs in America. And America suffers. Now let me address how Barack Obama's stimulus program has not worked. And the reason is simple. It was not intended to work. It was intended to increase the national debt. And to understand that, I would like to offer some basic understanding to the subject. When you borrow money from a bank, you're not borrowing the bank's money. You're borrowing money from the money deposited in the bank by your fellow citizens. So the banker is certainly aware of the fact that it is not his money he is lending. It belongs to his neighbors. And if he makes bad loans, 
that will not be repaid, his neighbors could withdraw all of their deposits and the bank would close. So he must be cautious when he makes loans to be certain the borrower has the ability to repay it. If he is successful, his depositors will allow him to keep his job. Now let's presume that some governmental agency started putting pressure on the banker to make loans to persons who do not have the ability to repay the loan. If he values his job, he must refuse to make the loan no matter who puts pressure on him. Now we can begin our study of the recession America is currently in. This is an article that appeared in the New York Times newspaper on September the 30th, 1999, and it states that Fannie Mae, the government-sponsored enterprise that keeps money flowing to the housing and mortgage markets, will encourage banks to extend home mortgages to individuals whose credit is generally not good enough to qualify for conventional loans. Notice that the government is encouraging the banks to make loans to people that they know will not be able to pay them back. There's not a banker in the world who will make loans that he knows will not be repaid, yet the government is urging him to do so. The article then says that Fannie Mae is, quote, under pressure from the Clinton administration, meaning Bill Clinton, to expand the number of these loans that the banks make, end quote. That means the Clinton administration was urging the banks to knowingly lose money. By the way, please notice that nearly everyone in this picture, except the women standing to the left, are wearing black, the color traditionally worn when you attend a funeral. Were Bill Clinton and his cabinet members wearing black as if they were about to attend a funeral? Perhaps they knew something we did not know. But the article then quotes an expert on mortgage loans as saying, if they fail, the government will have to step up and bail them out. The government will have to step up and bail them out. Notice that this expert used the words, bail them out. This man put his finger on the entire scheme. The Clinton administration knew it was going to fail. And that there was a planned, quote, bailout, end quote, in the future. Let me explain the process on how this was to work. Step one, the banks make the bad loans. They know they will be bailed out. And sure enough, in step two, Fannie Mae bails them out so that the banks do not lose money. Step three, Fannie Mae goes to the government and asks to be bailed out so they don't lose money. And step four, the government bails them out. Step five, the government needs to be bailed out. Step number six, so they borrow the money from the Federal Reserve so the government does not lose money. Step number seven, the Federal Reserve needs to be bailed out 
and they get paid back by step number eight, the taxpayers, so the Federal Reserve does not lose money. Step number nine, the only party to this pre-planned sequence that does not get bailed out are the taxpayers, and they get no, no, no bailout. So the American people lose their jobs and their homes, just as planned. This article laid out the entire plan. It was started by the Clinton administration. The entire thing worked, and Barack Obama is smiling. There he is, the smiling Barack Obama. And so is Karl Marx, because this entire thing came off just as planned. Before I leave this subject, I would like to mention something else. I've long searched the Internet for a picture of a smiling Karl Marx, and I must admit, there are none. But I believe he would be smiling because he knew there would be people like Barack Obama who believe his theories and would put them into practice. And that's why Barack Obama is smiling. There he is, the smiling Barack Obama. And one last thought. I shall end this presentation with the evidence. Notice that I'm saying the evidence. I'm going to present the evidence that Barack Obama is a Marxist communist. I will prove this. These comments will follow shortly. Now let me return to the thoughts of Dr. Day. This quotation that follows will be the last of them from the doctor, but it is possibly the most important of them all, as I shall soon explain. This is what Dr. Day say, Dr. Day said he learned. Terrorism would increase. Terrorism would increase so that the public would relinquish control of their lives to an increasing government. And I would like to provide some comments that will show you just how important this comment by Dr. Day is. And to do that, I must introduce you to a leading power in this country and in the world as well, and that is worldwide Freemasonry, also called Masonry. By the way, may I suggest that you remember this symbol of the Masons for the reasons that will follow. It is called the square and the compass, the joining of two objects, a square to draw straight lines and a compass to make curved lines. I will make this brief because I fully explored this organization in other books and DVDs. But first, let me all provide you with a few quotations written by major Masonic writers or writers closely in tune with the Masons. The first two quotes come from Manley P. Hall, a member of the Masons and one of the most prolific writers on the mystery religion. Freemasonry is the most powerful organization in the land. It is an ordainer of kings. Its hand has shaped the destinies of worlds. This next quotation was written by Arthur Edward Waite, not a Mason, but a supporter of the same goals. 
Beneath the broad tide of human history, there flow the stealthy undercurrents of the secret societies, which frequently determine in the depths the changes that take place upon the surface. This is another quotation from Manley P. Hall. The ancient initiates are the invisible powers behind the thrones of earth. And men are but marionettes dancing while the invisible ones pull the strings. We see the dancers, but the mastermind that does the work remains concealed by the cloak of silence. The following quotation is from a leading supporter of the New Age religion called Charles Leadbeater, but I can find no evidence that he was a member of the Masonic Lodge. He wrote this in his book entitled Freemasonry and its Ancient Mystic Rites, published in 1926. The hidden life of Freemasonry, the mighty force in the background, always at work, always at work, yet always out of sight. The next quotation comes from the book that I've already quoted from, entitled The Externalization of the Hierarchy and it shows just how important the Masons are in the future plan of this conspiracy. The three main channels through which the preparation for the New Age might be regarded as the Church, meaning I believe the Christian Church, which has been infiltrated by believers in this plan, the educational field, meaning our schools, which are teaching our children the plan, and the Masonic fraternity. And then Alice Bailey tells the reader why. The Masonic movement will meet the need of those who can and should wield power. It is the custodian of the law. It is a far more occult organization than can be realized and is intended to be the training school for the coming advanced occultists. So the Masons are far more important than most Americans realize. They will be major players when the New World Order is ushered in. Now that was a brief introduction into the power of the Masonic Lodge. I will mention a couple of the books that I've written on the Masonic Lodge at the end of this presentation, should you wish additional information. To understand Freemasonry, it is imperative that we must understand the role that one man, Albert Pike, played in it. And this is a picture of Mr. Pike showing some of his Masonic attire. There is a statue of him in Washington, D.C., and the plaque at the base of it reads as follows. Dedicated 1977 under the auspices of Henry C. Clausen, Sovereign Grand Commander of the Scottish Rite Mother Jurisdiction, to the loving memory of Albert Pike, leader of the worldwide Masonic movement, and then I've added from 1859 to 1891. So Mr. Pike was a key member of the Masonic Lodge 
not only in the United States, but around the world. So what this man wrote certainly would carry weight amongst the worldwide Masonic fraternity. What you are about to read is quite possibly the most controversial material written by or attributed to him. The claim is made by some researchers that he wrote a letter to the Italian Giuseppe Mazzini, another key Masonic leader, on August the 15th, 1871, in which Pike outlined the Masonic plan for three, three world wars. If you are not familiar with Mr. Mazzini, let me give you a few facts about him for your information. He was born in 1805 and passed away in 1872. And he was also the founder of the Mafia. The M in Mafia stands for Mazzini. There are some who do not believe that Mr. Pike wrote this letter, and therefore it is a fraud. However, one can only wonder how anyone would know that an individual did not write a letter unless the individual himself denied it. And there is no known record that Pike ever disavowed this letter. The letter is a blueprint for events that would play themselves out in the 20th and 21st centuries with some of these events yet to come. It is this blueprint which we believe unseen leaders in the world are following today, knowingly or not, to engineer the planned third and final world war. The first place where I found this letter was in a book written in 1957 entitled The Mystery of Freemasonry Unveiled. The author of that book was Cardinal Carlo E. Rodriguez of Santiago, Chile, and he claimed that the letter was documented in 1895 in another book, so that if both of these books are legitimate, it was certainly written prior to the First World War, which started in 1914 and lasted until around 1918. The letter that Pike wrote shows that in 1871, he worked out a military blueprint for three world wars, two of which would occur in the 20th century. So now I would like to provide you with the extract, extracts of that letter showing you how three world wars have been planned for many generations. The first world war, as I said, from 1914 to about 1918, must be brought about in order to permit the Illuminati, as I said before, founded in 1776 by Adam Weishaupt in Bavaria, and later to infiltrate Freemasonry, permit the Illuminati to overthrow the power of the Tsars in Russia, and of making that country a fortress of atheistic communism. The Second World War, as I said, from 1941 to 1945, must be fomented by taking advantage of the differences between the fascists and the political Zionists. Zionism is defined by Webster's as a movement for colonizing Jews in Palestine. This war must be brought about so that the German socialism is destroyed and that the political Zionism be strong enough to institute a sovereign state of Israel in Palestine. During the Second World War, international communism must become strong enough in order to balance 
Christendom, which would then be restrained. By the way, there was one bonus for both of these wars. The people who make these, those little white things, made a lot of them. In fact, estimates are that 17 million died in World War I and 53 million died in World War II. But I am certain their grieving relatives understand that this was a sacrifice that their relatives made so that these planters could bring about that new world order. Now let me return to the World War plans of Albert Pike. The Third World War must be fomented by taking advantage of the differences caused by the Illuminati between the political Zionists and the leaders of the Islamic world. There it is, I'm sorry, I got behind. The differences caused by the Illuminati between the political Zionists and the leaders of the Islamic world. Now comes the real shocker. We shall, notice we, meaning Pike included, we shall unleash the nihilists. Now, nihilism is defined by Webster's as any violent revolutionary movement involving the use of terrorism. Terrorism. We shall provoke a formidable social cataclysm. And on September the 11th, 2001, this network unleashed the nihilists, a violent revolutionary movement involving the use of terrorism. Someone planned the plan. Someone followed the plan. World War III between the terrorist world and the civilized world has already started. And it started on September the 11th, 2001. And to conclude my remarks on the 9-11 attack, I want to make my position crystal clear. 9-11 was an inside job. That means it too was planned years in advance. In other words, the 9-11 attack was the result of the plans of a conspiracy. The event was totally controlled by the American government. And I say that even though I remember the words of George W. Bush when he spoke to the United Nations just two months later on November the 10th, 2001, this is what he said. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. Malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves away from the guilty. And I say this to President Bush. If I was to testify under oath, I would continue to declare that 9-11 was an inside job. And then I would present the evidence that it was. I would say that any fair-minded person who studies the hundreds of hours of videos on the Internet must conclude that the American government planned the event in its entirety. And the reason they did was to inflame the American people into accepting a war in Afghanistan and Iraq. 
The United States government has had a history of doing exactly that in at least three other wars they entered into. Franklin Roosevelt, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and Winston Churchill, appointed as the English First Lord of Admiralty, first are both members of the Masons, with the full support of Woodrow Wilson, President, uh, not a member, planned on sinking the Lusitania, a huge ocean liner with Americans on board, off of the coast of Great Britain by placing the ship in an area where they knew German submarines were as a way of inflaming the American people against Germany so that we would enter World War One. The Lusitania was sunk by a torpedo fired from a nearby German submarine, and America was inflamed so as to allow the American government to enter the war. The plan worked, the Lusitania was sunk, and we entered World War One. This is all covered in far more detail in my book entitled The Unseen Hand and in the book entitled The Lusitania by Colin, or Colin Simpson. The second instance of a planned event occurred when the American government goaded Japan into attacking our armed forces at Pearl Harbor on December, December 7, 1941, as a way for America as a way for America to enter World War II. The evidence is abundant that this is so, and once again is fully documented in my book, The Unseen Hand. And thirdly, the American government planned the Vietnamese War in at least 1945, 1945, even though it did not officially start until 1964. And to get us militarily involved, America planned a non-event, meaning the event did not happen. The North Vietnamese allegedly attacked this nation's destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin in international waters, and the American government used this episode as a way of inflaming the American people to enter the war. Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense during the time of the Gulf of Tonkin incident, has recently admitted that the attack never happened. The viewer can see this man's testimony on a video he made to explain how all of this happened. This is on YouTube, and the viewer is urged to see it for themselves. And this plan worked as well. The American people were told that the attack actually happened and that we needed to retaliate because of this attack. So the 9-11 attack was the fourth example of how our government created an incident so that the American people would support their plans for a war. I would like to now provide you with some very disturbing information about how it came to be that Osama bin Laden would create the terrorist organization called Al-Qaeda for the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center in 2001. And to do so, I must go back to the invasion of Afghanistan by Russia in December of 1979. In 1980, Congressman Ron Paul released a press release about the invasion route the Russians took to invade Afghanistan. This is a photograph of part of the 300-mile double-lane highway that was constructed by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. 
the road was constructed in some of the most inaccessible mountain territory on Earth. It rose as high as 8,000 feet and consisted of 50 bridges and 2,000 culverts. And he reported that the United States was careful to connect our road to the one the Russian Army engineers were building to the border between Russia and Afghanistan. In other words, the United States and their partner, Russia, built hundreds of miles of highway to allow the Russian tanks and trucks easy access into Afghanistan. And a few months after the road was completed, Russia invaded. Uh, this is Secretary of State Hillary Clinton on the right, of course, who on July the 19th, 2001, on the Greta Van Susteren program on Fox News, gave Greta this statement. We had helped the problem. We had helped create. We had helped create the problem. We are now fighting, meaning terrorism by Al Qaeda. When the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, we had this brilliant idea that we were going to come to Pakistan to create a force of Mujahideen. Equip them with Stinger missiles and everything else to go after the Soviets. And we were successful. The Soviets left the nation, leaving them well armed. Now you look back. The people we are fighting today, we were supporting in the fight against the Soviets. Now, as the war neared its end in 1988, Osama bin Laden organized Al-Qaeda. In other words, if we had not built the road to allow the Soviets to invade Afghanistan, we wouldn't have had Al-Qaeda. Qaeda to attack the World Trade Center on September the 11th, 2001. In other words, we built the road so that Al-Qaeda would attack the World Trade Center. Yes, 9-11 was planned by the United States before we built the road connecting Afghanistan to the road built by the Russians. Thank you, Hillary for telling us the truth. Thus end the thoughts of Dr. Richard Day. I'm hoping that you can see that many of the things he said in 1969 have come to pass or are being brought to fruition as we speak. So in conclusion, I will dare say that Planned Parenthood is not only a population control center, but apparently it is also a school for those who need to be made aware that there is a plan for America. And during the course of his employment there, they made Dr. Day aware of it. We have seen that Karl Marx, the so-called father of communism, also knew there was a plan. This is why he wrote it down in the Communist Manifesto by an already existing organization, one that had been created 72 years before. That organization that fomented the plan was the Illuminati formed in 1776. Karl Marx was a member of the Illuminati. We have seen that America was set on the course it is currently on by this plan. And now I would like to end this presentation with the evidence that 
The reason Barack Obama supports the plan is because Barack Obama is a Marxist communist. Now, I would like to invite all of you to be on a jury and listen to all of the evidence that I will present in support of that statement before you reach a verdict. Because the future that this plan has for America will not be fun. And all moral men and women must educate themselves and then share that knowledge with others so that all of us can put a stop to their future plans for this nation and ultimately the world. Now let me begin the process of providing you with the evidence that Barack Obama is a Marxist communist. This is the book he wrote entitled Dreams from My Father, published in 1995 and updated in 2004. And a good place to start would be on page Roman numeral 12, where Mr. Obama praises his mother. And this is what he says about her. My mother helped my sister and me, and that what is best in me, I owe to her. And this is what he tells us about her views about the world. She, my mother, was a lonely witness for secular humanism. I would like to take a few moments for those not familiar with secular humanism. This is a religious view of man. And they have published three manifestos, meaning their position papers. The first was in 1933, the second in 1973, and the third was in 2003. Brock's mother passed away in 1995, so she could not have known about Humanist Manifesto 3. So I will concentrate on the first two as a way of showing you just what she believed in. This is a booklet containing copies of both Humanist Manifestos 1 and 2, and I shall only discuss those positions that are pertinent to our discussion of possibly how Barack Obama first learned about communism. This is position paper, position number 14 of the first manifesto. The humanists are firmly convinced that existing acquisitive and profit motivated society has shown itself to be inadequate and that a radical change in method, controls, and motives must be instituted. A socialized and cooperative economic order must be established to the end that the equitable distribution of the means of life be possible. Humanists demand a shared life in a shared world. If you read that correctly, it could have been written by Karl Marx, a communist and a humanist. Now, let me repeat what Barack Obama told Joe the Plumber during the presidential campaign of 2008. I think when you spread the wealth around, it's good for everybody. So Barack Obama's mother was a Marxist communist, although she reportedly declared herself to be a secular humanist. Remember what Barack Obama said about his mother, and that, what is best in me, I owe to her.
In case Barack's mother read Humanist Manifesto 2 to learn the positions of the secular humanists, I would like to quote from position number 15, because this one increases the size and scope of sharing the wealth to an international scope. Extreme disproportions in wealth and income should be reduced on a worldwide basis. This would change Karl Marx's dictum to from each according from each nation according from each nation according to its ability to each nation according to its needs. Suddenly Barack Obama's views about sharing the wealth are revealed in the views of his mother. But these thoughts were for a very young Barack Obama. In his book, he shared the names of others who shared their commerce views with him. During high school, Brock said on page 85, he gathered up books from the library, and some of those books he read were written by W.E.B. Du Bois. In 1961, the Commerce Party announced a letter that Mr. Du Bois had written to them that said, in part, during the 1920s and 30s, I began to study Karl Marx and the communists. Communism is the only way to human life. In the end, communism will triumph. I want to help bring that day. The path of the American Commerce Party is clear. And then he listed 10 platform positions, only one of which I shall mention here. It was the third one. And it read the limitation of personal income. Once again, how does that compare with, I think when you spread the wealth around, it's good for everybody. Another writer that Barack Obama read was Langston Hughes, a poet, a writer of plays, novels, and motion pictures and motion picture and television scripts. One of his most celebrated poems was Goodbye Christ, and it contained these lines. Make way for a new guy, a real guy named Marx Communist. And his, in his poem entitled Ballad of Lenin, meaning Nikolai Lenin, the brutal communist dictator of Russia, he wrote, Move over, Comrade Lenin, and give me room. I fought with you, Comrade Lenin. I lived for you, Comrade Lennon. The world is our room. Mr. Hughes never admitted membership in the Commerce Party of the United States. But two former Commerce Party officials, Louis Bedenz and Manning Johnson, testified under oath that they knew Hughes to be a member of the Commerce Party. Yes, Barack Obama was learning his lessons well from these communists. Later, when Barack Obama enrolled at Occidental College in 1979, he told us in his book that I chose my friends carefully. And then he listed several groups that he chose, including the Marxist professors. Yes, Barack Obama wanted to continue his study of the communist ideology by learning from the Marxist professors on the Occidental faculty. Mr. Obama only spent two years at Occidental, and he then transferred to Columbia University to finish his four-year college experience. 
Now, the question remains, did he seek out the Marxist professors on the campus of Columbia as he did at Occidental? And I'll provide you with some evidence that he did. This is a book entitled Brock H. Obama, the unauthorized biography by Webster Griffin Tarpley. He made this observation on page 52 of his book. In a speech in Iowa, during a speech he delivered during the 2008 presidential campaign, Mr. Obama told the audience this. So big new Brzezinski is someone I have learned an immense from. He further praised him with these words. He's one of our most outstanding scholars and thinkers. Mr. Brzezinski was Professor Brzezinski at Columbia from 1960 to 1989, which means he was there during Barack Obama's junior and senior years at Columbia. And while he was there, he was the head of the Institute for Communist Affairs. So we can now determine what it was that Barack Obama learned from Professor Brzezinski. This is a book written by uh, written by him in 1970 while he was a professor at Columbia, and we can read quite possibly one of the books that his student Barack Obama read. It is entitled Between Two Ages. I will now quote a total of 13 statements of his that reflect his support of the communist ideology. The viewer might think that this is a bit excessive, but I just want the viewer to see that this professor really believed in Marxist communism and that I am citing his own words. I'm going to, I'm doing this. I'm doing this to show you that Professor Brzezinski is a self-professed Marxist communist. These are those 13 comments by Professor Brzezinski. Marxism represented a further vital and creative stage in the maturing of man's universal vision. Marxism is a victory of reason over belief. Marxism puts a premium on guides to action derived from an examination of its belief. Marxism did expand popular self-awareness by awakening the masses to social equality and by providing them with an, an historic, historical justification for insisting upon it. Marxism represented the most advanced method of extrapolating from its certain principles concerning social behavior. Marxism has served as a mechanism of human progress, even if its practice has often fallen short of ideals. Now, just for the record, the Marxist Russian Communist Revolution of 1917 to 1923 murdered as many as 40 million Russians. And the Chinese Communist Revolution of 1927 to about 1949 murdered more than 60 million Chinese. I wonder if these examples of communism's practice are the ones that he claims have fallen short of its ideals. Uh, <laughs> maybe, just maybe, he somehow forgot to explain just how its practices had fallen short of its ideals. Perhaps the reason that communism's practice has fallen short of its ideals is because of one man, Sergei Nechayev. 
he wrote a little pamphlet entitled The Revolutionary Catechism, and it was the foundation for the entire communist revolution in Russia from 1917 until 1923. According to Robert Payne, in his book entitled The Life and Death of Lenin, meaning Nikolai Lenin, this pamphlet was read by Lenin and profoundly influenced him. In all its essentials, it would remain the guiding principle of Lenin's political, meaning in this case, communist activity. So the student of communism must read Necheyev to understand why communism was so brutal in the Russian Communist Revolution of 1917. The following are taken from this little booklet. The revolutionary is a doomed man. Everything in him is wholly absorbed in the single thought and the single passion for revolution. He has broken all the bonds which tie him to the social order and the civilized world. The revolutionary must be tyrannical, must be tyrannical towards others. For him, morality is everything which contributes to the triumph of the revolution. Night and day, he must have but one thought, merciless destruction. Can you believe someone actually put this in writing? Merciless destruction. He must be prepared to destroy himself and destroy with his own hands everything that stands in the path of the revolution. He should not hesitate to destroy any person, any place, or any man. He must hate everyone and everything in it with an equal hatred. This filthy social order can be split into several categories. The first category comprises those who must be condemned to death without delay. When the order of execution is prepared, no private sense of outrage should be considered. And the orders of execution must have been written for 40 million Russians. And their only crime was living in a capitalist society and not wanting to live in a communist one. Nowhere in Brzezinski's book can I find one mention of the name of Sergei Nechayev. So one can certainly understand why Professor Brzezinski did not feel any sense of moral outrage when this example of communism practice fell short of its ideals. And that's why Professor Brzezinski so admired the communist philosophy. Now let me return to the thoughts of Brzezinski as contained in his book entitled Between Two Ages. It has been Marxism that has served to stir the mind and to mobilize human energies purposely. The major contribution of Marxism, its, its broadening influence, which opened man's mind to previously ignored perspectives. Marxism represents an important and progressive stage. Marxism represented a major advance in man's ability to conceptualize his relationship 
to the world. Marxism provided a unique intellectual tool for harnessing the fundamental forces of our time. Marxism supplied the best available insight into contemporary reality. And finally, Marxist theory is the standard bearer of this, this century's of this century's most influential system of thought, and as the social model for resolving the key dilemmas forcing uh, facing modern man. Yes, indeed, Professor Brzezinski is a self-professed Marxist communist, and he could have served as a real teacher of Marxism to young Barack Obama if he had continued to, quote, choose his friends wisely, end quote, and continue to seek out the Marxist professors. Uh, did I fail to mention that Zbigniew Brzezinski was President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor? Because he was. Apparently, Jimmy didn't read Brzezinski's book entitled Between Two Ages. I know this is but a brief review of Barack Obama's history, but I think we can also say, yes, indeed, Barack Obama is a Marxist communist. He's told us that in his own words. By the way, and certainly not essential to our study of the New World Order, there is a group who also wanted to admire the writings of Karl Marx, and that was the Beatles. This is the cover of their Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band that was released in 1967. Apparently, this album was a great hit amongst those who enjoyed what has been called rock and roll music. It has been called the most important rock and roll album ever made. As you can see, the album cover is made up of a collage of individuals apparently collected together to hear the Lonely Hearts Band in front of them. One of the sites on the internet, internet about this album said that the Beatles picked these people out as being, quote, some of their favorite celebrities, end quote, and I would like to point out two of them. This is a close-up of the picture of Karl Marx in the crowd, one of the favorite celebrities of the Beatles. And the other one is Aleister Crowley, an occultist and a habitual drug user of opium and cocaine, amongst others. The English media called Mr. Crowley the wickedest man alive, apparently because of his libertine lifestyle. He is the author of the book entitled The Book of the Law, published in 1938. The author claimed that the book was dictated to him by a spiritual being called Awas, while Crowley was in Egypt. Please remember that Jay-Z Knight was contacted by a spiritual being called Ramtha. <laughs> I guess I'm a failure. The only spiritual beings who contact me are those, <laughs> are those crummy bill collectors. The book consists of but 50 small pages, but the essence of the lesson I was shared is on page 9. This book lays down a simple code of conduct. conduct. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And then he amplified that with these comments 
continued on page 9, and then on page 31. All events are equally lawful. This means that each man is free to decide what he wants to do. Every decision of his is permitted. Now, that, that sounds just like what Ramtha taught Jay-Z Knight and what she taught Terry Cole Whitaker. But read this from page 31. Be strong, O man. Lust. Enjoy all things of sense. Maybe this is the reason the Beatles felt Aleister Crowley was one of their favorite celebrities. Now, in conclusion, I would like to bring in an expert on communism to attest to the virtues of the system. Perhaps I've been a little too harsh on the system during the presentation. This expert has lived the joys of the communist system for 53 years, ever since he assumed the presidency of his country in 1959. And that expert is, of course, Fidel Castro, the president of Cuba, a communist nation. This man's credentials are impeccable. He has seen Cuba as a communist nation ever since 1959. In fact, he was the one that led the revolution to create the communist state. Now, let's see if his views about the joys of communism still hold true. This is an article that appeared in my local newspaper on September the 9th, 2010. And as you can see, the headline reads, Fidel, economic system no longer works. The author reported that Castro told a visiting American journalist that the Cuban model doesn't even work for us anymore. The article continued, the state controls well over 90% of the economy. Paying Cuban workers salaries of $20 a month in return for free health care and education. And nearly free transportation and housing. At least a portion of every citizen's food needs are sold to them through ration books at heavily subsidized prices. The communists have warned Cubans that they need to start working harder and expecting less from government. Barack Obama, are you listening? This article appeared in my local newspaper on July the 17th, 2012, and the headline reports, Communist Cuba faces the unthinkable, cutting jobs from its bloated workforce. This is the close-up of the photo accompanying the article, which reports, at a state project to refurbish a decaying building in Old Havana, one worker paints a wall while two watch. A fourth sleeps in a wheelbarrow in a sliver of shade, and two more smoke and chat on the curb. Here, nearly everyone works for the state, and official unemployment is minuscule. But pay is so low that the Cubans like to joke that the state pretends to pay us, and we pretend to work. The article says that the state employs 95% of the official workforce. Raul Castro, Fidel's brother, who took over for Fidel in 2006, was quoted as saying, without people feeling the need to work to make a living, 
sheltered by state regulations that are excessively paternalistic and irrational, we will never stimulate a love for work. <laughs> Baba, <laughs> President Obama, are you paying attention? And lastly, in 2011, Cuba allowed the Cuban people to actually purchase real estate and a personal automobile. There was no discussion about a heavy graduate income tax to force the Cubans to pay more in taxes. Uh, President Obama, is the, are these articles telling you something? One of the world's leading communists just announced that communism does not work. Of course, I've been proving this in my classes and in my books and videos I've produced since 1973. But President Obama never attended any of my classes, nor has he, to the best of my knowledge, ever read any of my books or watched any of my videos. So, of course, he couldn't possibly know that communism is a total fraud. It has never worked anywhere in the world. Now, let me give you one clue that there is a reason that Cuba became a communist nation and then was kept as a communist nation until the crack started to show in 2010. There are coded messages concealed in four major days of Fidel's, Fidel Castro's life that need to be explored. Fidel Castro named his revolution the 26th of July movement. July is the seventh month of the year, and 26 is the number of the day. 7 plus 26 equals 33, and 33 is the number of the highest degree in Freemasonry. And to show you just how concealed this number is, this is once again the symbol of the Masonic Lodge, a square and a compass. And the two points of the compass form an angle of 33 degrees on a 360-degree circle. But El Castro named his brigade the 26th of July movement after his guerrilla army invaded the Moncada barracks of the Cuban army in the small village called Oriente on July the 26th, 1953. July is the seventh month, plus two and six, which are the days, and N plus 1 plus 9 plus 5 plus 3 equals 33, the, 33, the highest degree in masonry. Castro's army rolled victoriously into Havana on January 8, 1959. January is the first month, plus 8 for the, the day, plus 1, plus 9, plus 5, plus 9 equals 33, the highest degree in masonry. Fidel Castro was sworn in as Prime Minister of Cuba on February the 16th, 1959. February is the second month of the year, plus 1, plus 6, plus 1, plus 9, plus 5, plus 9, equals 
33, the highest degree in masonry. Now, there are only four explanations of why he hid this Masonic number in four of these significant dates in his past. He just liked the number for some unexplained personal reason. He is informing Masons all over the world that he is a 33rd degree Mason. He was doing it to let others know that the Masons are the major supporter of his communist revolution in Cuba. Or he was doing this for a far more frightening reason. He is an initiate in the ancient mystery religion, just like many of the writers I've discussed in this presentation who have embraced it as well. I will let you ponder which one of those is correct. If you want to know more about the ancient mystery religion and its connection to masonry, may I suggest that you watch my eight-hour DVD entitled Conspiracy Against Christianity. This DVD will be the last one you will need to watch because it will show the viewer exactly what this new world order is and why these planners want to create it. As an inducement for you to watch it, may I, ask, may I ask each of you this one question. What is the difference between liberty and freedom? If you said that they are synonyms, meaning they mean the same thing, I will show you that they are not synonyms at all. They are antonyms, meaning they are words with opposite meanings. This DVD We'll explore that, and after you've seen the difference, America's history will start to make sense. Once again, that DVD is entitled Conspiracy Against Christianity, and it's on YouTube. Now, while I'm discussing this, please understand that even if you are not a Christian, this plan of the planners will substantially affect you and the way you live your life. But let me return to the Castro and Cuba story for one last bit of information. The newspapers have reported for years that the American government, perhaps through the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, have made numerous attempts to assassinate Fidel Castro. And as I read the reports, I intuitively surmised that none of them would succeed. And the reason is that it was the American government that placed Fidel Castro into the seat of power in Cuba. For those who want further details, may I suggest that you read my book entitled The Unseen Hand, because I document, I document the case to prove my contentions. Simply stated, the American people wanted Fidel Castro to communize Cuba. Now let me return to Fidel Castro's coded use of the number 33 in four of the significant days in his life. I will provide you with one clue by recalling a couple of quotes that Manly P. Hall wrote that I've quoted before in this presentation. The first one was this. Masonry is the most powerful organization in the land. And this is the second one. It is an ordainer of kings. Its hand has shaped the destinies of worlds. Maybe it was the Masons who ordained Fidel Castro as King of Cuba. That might be 
the best answer of all. And I will offer this one additional evidence that the Masons do control the destinies of worlds. Fox News on September the 16th, 2012, told its audience that there were 33 nations protesting the so-called movie that many were claiming had defamed Allah, the God of the Muslims. Did you notice that? 33 nations, not 32 or 34, protesting this video. As I said, the implication of that comment is that the Masons do indeed control the destinies of worlds. This is Whitaker Chambers of Face from the past, but certainly not known by many in the United States today. And he has an interesting story to tell. He wrote a book entitled Witness in 1952 in which he discussed two major decisions in his life. The first was when he joined the Communist Party of the United States in 1925. He reported that he worked his way through the party until he was a contact man between a powerful Soviet-Russian espionage apparatus in Washington and my superior in New York City. Because one single episode caused him to realize that communists were wrong. And this episode caused him to leave the Communist Party, and he relates how it happened. I was sitting in our apartment. My daughter was in her high chair, and I was watching her eat. My eye came to rest on the delicate convolutions of her ear. The thought passed through my mind. No, those ears were not created by any chance coming together of atoms in nature, which is, of course, the communist view. They could have been created only by immense design. And he went to his wife and explained his discovery, and she also pondered what he had seen. Because of this thought, they both left the Communist Party. President Obama, have you really looked at the human ear recently. But the most frightening thing Mr. Chambers said was this. We are leaving the winning world for the losing world. Was he right? I will let you reflect on that question. There once was a very stupid man who tried to trick a very wise man. He put a peanut in its shell in his hand and then clenched his fingers to conceal the peanut from view. He approached the wise man and said to him, I will ask you one question, and by your answer I can tell you if you are indeed a wise man. And then he showed the wise man his clenched fist. He asked the wise man this question. Is the peanut in my hand in the shell or is it outside the shell? Thinking that if the wise man said 
it is in the shell. He would crush the peanut and then open his hand to reveal that it was outside the shell. If the wise man said it is outside the shell, he would open his fingers to reveal that it was in the shell. The wise man thought for a few moments and then said, the event is in your hand. Truly wise men today will see that the future of their world is in their hands. Thank you so very much. And may God bless America. The year 2016 was a year of a presidential election in America. And the process started when the Democrat and Republican political parties held televised debates amongst their candidates. The American people could then choose the two nominees as their party's presidential candidate. And then the American people would elect one of these two candidates as their president for the years of 2017 to 2021. But a very strange thing happened during two of the debates amongst the 10 Republican presidential candidates. But before I start the discussion, I would like to provide some background information that will assist in understanding just what happened during these two debates. Manly P. Hall has long been considered as one of the world's greatest writers on the secret doctrine inside the occult religion known as the ancient mystery religion. And to set the material that will follow, I would like to quote from page five of his book entitled The Secret Teachings of All Ages. Symbolism fulfilled the dual office of concealing the sacred truths from the uninitiated and revealing them to those qualified to understand the symbols. What Mr. Hall just said was that those who believe in this mystery religion use symbols to let other initiates know that they are indeed members as well. Notice that the average American who sees an individual displaying the symbol has absolutely no idea what it means and lets it pass without comment. Now that we understand that, let me illustrate what Mr. Hall meant by showing you slides taken during two of the televised Republican debates during the campaign of 2016. This slide shows once again the 10 candidates on the stage after being introduced by the moderator. This was, of course, the first part of all of the debates. During the playing of the national anthem, these three candidates were shown with their right hand over their heart, the traditional way of showing allegiance to the American nation. Notice that the hand is placed with the entire palm against the heart with the fingers extended. Now, this is the first of two pictures that I would like to show you that were taken during the playing of the national anthem before the questioning of the candidates began. Notice that Senator Ted Cruz, the man on the right, is standing to the left of Donald Trump, another of the candidates running for the presidency. 
Please notice that Mr. Trump is wearing a blue, a blue tie. Also notice that the senator has placed his right hand inside the left side of his coat, while the others have placed their hand over the heart, the traditional position for those during the playing of the national anthem. This is the second picture of the senator standing to the left of Mr. Trump, shown wearing a red a red tie in this instance as compared to the blue one he wore in the first picture. In other words, the senator was photographed twice, twice displaying a symbol, one not typical, while listening to the national anthem. According to Mr. Hall, the purpose of this symbol is to inform others that the displayer also is a member of the religion. I would like to return to the first picture I showed in this sequence, and it shows that the senator knew. Senator Cruz knew the proper placement of his hand while listening to the national anthem. That must mean that Senator Cruz was knowingly placing his hand in that position because he was telling some people that he was somehow different from the other candidates. He willingly displayed this symbol during two, two different debates. There must be a reason he did this. Now, in the next few slides, I will discuss a worldwide secret society that uses symbols to transmit information that one displaying a symbol is a member of the Masonic Lodge, this worldwide secret society. These slides will help you understand what the next slides will mean as we progress through this presentation. There is compelling evidence that the senator is not not a member of the Masons. This is Senator Bob Dole, a senator from Kansas and the Republican Party's nominee for the presidency in 1996. And this is a photograph of Bob Dole as published on pages 30 and 31 of the January 1994 Scottish Rite Journal, the official magazine of the Masons. This is the paragraph from those pages showing that the senator is a 33rd degree Mason, alongside a photograph of him addressing the Masonic Lodge. This is a photograph copied from Google Images that was taken off of a Fox News broadcast wherein Senator Dole gave his thoughts about the candidacy of Ted Cruz in 2016. It appears as if the headline reads, Former GOP candidate Bob Dole says Donald Trump better than Ted Cruz. The New York Times newspaper printed an article on January the 20th, 2016, about Senator Dole's comment about Senator Ted Cruz if he were successful in securing the nomination of the Republican Party. I don't know how he's going to deal with Congress. Nobody likes him. These are rather strange things to say if Senator Cruz was a fellow member of the Masonic Lodge because Masons take oaths to support their fellow Masons in their endeavors. That means that Dole would have supported Cruz 
in the Republican primaries if Cruz was a Mason. So we are left with the only other option. Ted Cruz is an initiate of a secret religion that uses the symbol as a way of revealing that the giver is a member. And to show you that Dole was a Mason who supported his fellow Masons, he nominated Jack Kemp as his vice presidential candidate for the 1996 campaign. And here is a rather poor quality copy of the October 16, 1986 Buffalo New York News newspaper that announced the selection of three Masons to the 33rd degree. And this is the photograph of Jack F. Kemp, Dole's fellow 33rd degree Mason. So these photographs will stand as evidence that Masons support their fellow Masons. Now that we have introduced you to the use of a symbol as a way of informing others of a truth, let me now start the explanation of what this symbol means. The lion's paw. A brief review of an ancient symbol. A presentation of Publius Productions. Delivered on February the 27th, 2017. Permission is hereby granted to make copies of this presentation. My name is Ralph Epperson, and I've been studying secret societies and their symbols for over 50 years of my life as part of my study of the conspiratorial view of history. And I must say that nothing surprises me anymore. I have discovered a symbol of the past that has been utilized for thousands of years that identifies the displayer of the symbol as having been born again to the ancient mystery religion. That sign is made by making a fist and then slightly curling the tips of the fingers so that the tip of the fingers are tucked under the palm. The thumb is then moved into the hole made under the palm by a slight opening of the fist. Ever since I found the first photograph of someone giving this sign, I have been looking for other examples in pictures and paintings, and I've taken the key examples of it that I have found and put them together into this review. May I take a few moments and add that if any of you should find additional examples of the lion's paw in history, I would ask that you send me a copy of the photograph or the portrait and what book or magazine it was in, meaning the title of the source, the publication or publishing date, and the author, if it's in a book, to my mailing address, which is Ralph Epperson, 3100 South Philomena Place, Tucson, Arizona, 85730. I would truly appreciate it. Let me further explain that this sampling of pictures and portraits is by no means complete, nor even exhaustive, as I just collected these photographs and paintings as I found them, not making any specific attempt to locate others in other publications. I must also apologize for the poor quality of some of these photographs and paintings, but many of them are photocopies taken from books, magazines, or newspapers.
and I am only attempting to introduce a subject that, as far as I can tell, has not been researched by any other historian. When I first started the research for my book in the 1960s, I discovered the world of the ancient mystery religion. Quite simply, this is a religious view of man with a different God. It is still believed in worldwide even today. One of the most startling things I discovered as I read was that this religion has as its God a being that they identify by the name Lucifer. Lucifer. The Bible calls this being Satan or the devil, but the ancient mystery religion calls him Lucifer. This worship is 6,000 years old and is concealed in the worship of every god of the past. This is how it was explained by Albert Mackey, a 33rd degree Mason, on page 497 in his two-volume set entitled An Encyclopedia of Freemasonry under the heading of The Ancient Mysteries. Each of the pagan gods had, besides the public and open, a secret worship paid to him, to which none were admitted but those who had been called who those who had been selected by ceremonies called initiation. This secret worship was called the mysteries. That means that within any religion there's a small circle of believers called initiates who conceal the fact that the God being worshipped is in truth the devil discussed in the Bible and not the God of the remaining believers. For those who are interested in this study, may I recommend that you consider reading my second and third books, The New World Order and Masonry, Conspiracy Against Christianity, Evidence that the Masonic Lodge has a secret agenda. Or you could search the internet for an eight-hour DVD that I have produced entitled Conspiracy Against Christianity. This is a review of this entire subject of the ancient mystery religion. I will be mentioning that certain individuals discussed during this presentation are 33rd degree Masons, and I would like to explain just what that means. The Masons initiate men by degrees, and the 33rd degree is the highest degree attainable, and it is only conferred by invitation. The Mason cannot become a 33rd degree Mason unless he is invited into that degree. Now let me start documenting the use of the hidden symbol called the lion's paw. This Egyptian hieroglyphic shows an Egyptian pharaoh being prepared for eternal life on a table representing a lion. Notice that the lion's head is on the left near the pharaoh's head. So the lion apparently symbolized eternal life to the Egyptians. This hieroglyphic shows someone in a lion's costume kneeling or sitting by a corpse. Notice that the lion is holding the ankh, an Egyptian symbol of eternal life. 
I think that this would be an appropriate place to mention this comment made by Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, one of the major writers in support of in support of the ancient mystery religion. This is what she wrote on page 265 of her book entitled The Secret Doctrine, Volume 3. The mysteries preceded the hieroglyphics. They gave birth to the latter. This means that the ancient mystery religion is around 6,000 years old. This drawing comes from a book entitled The Lost Keys of Freemasonry by Manley P. Hall. Notice that in this picture, the initiate holds the ankh in his hand. The words underneath the picture in the book explain, by this grip of the lion, the man is raised to life, meaning he's been born again. This is a picture of a statue of an Egyptian pharaoh named Khufu or Cheops in the Greek language, the builder of the Great Pyramid of Giza outside of Cairo, Egypt. This is the earliest example of the lion's paw that I have found. Khufu was the Egyptian pharaoh for 23 years, from 2551 B.C. to 2528 B.C. That means that the Egyptian pyramid he built is around 4,500 years old. This photograph appeared in my local newspaper, and the article that accompanied it said that the statue represented the high priest Kai. It then reported that he served all of the pharaohs who built the three pyramids on the Giza Plateau, including the third pyramid to the right called the Great Pyramid of Giza. This is a collection of photographs of another Egyptian pharaoh named Net Jeriket. You will notice that he is also showing the lion's paw symbol. While I am discussing the Great Pyramid, I would like to bring to your attention some of the writings of Mr. Hall about its purposes. First, I would like to show you a drawing of a cross-section of the pyramid showing what has been called the King's Chamber in approximately the center of the pyramid. Even though it is called the King's Chamber, it has never contained the mummy of the pharaoh Khufu or, for that matter, any other pharaoh. Therefore, it was never intended to be a tomb. Now let me return to Mr. Hall's writings. These comments are all found on page XLIV, Roman numerals for page 44 of his book entitled Secret Teachings of All Ages. The pyramid was in reality the supreme temple of the invisible and supreme deity. It was the first temple of the mysteries. So he has concluded that it was built of a temple, as a temple, built as the temple of initiation into the great mystery religion. Once again, it was never built as a tomb for Khufu. 
Helena Petrovna Blavatsky wrote, this is confirmation of what Mr. Hall wrote about the purpose of the Great Pyramid. The mysteries and the initiations took place in that pyramid, for indeed, it was built for that purpose. By the way, this is a representation of the Great Pyramid of Giza. As one part of the two-sided great seal of the United States as displayed on the back of our dollar bill. This seal was unanimously approved in 1782 by this nation's founding fathers. It might be helpful if I now discuss just what a seal is. This is a wax seal created when the king sealed some treaty or other document by letting hot wax drip onto its surface. As it cooled, he would stick his ring into the wax to make an impression. It would harden, and the wax would stay in that position. The wax seal served two purposes. It would reveal if the document had been opened prior to reaching its destination, because if it had been broken, it would have been impossible to restore it to its original condition. And it could also certify that the king had made the document official because only the king had the ring that had made the impression. Now, nearly almost all governments in the world have only one seal. So if the American seal has two sides, one side has no direct purpose. So it must have a hidden purpose. And Mr. Hall tells us that it does on page 181 of his book entitled The Secret Destiny of America. This is what he wrote. The great seal set forth the purpose for this nation as that purpose was seen and known to the founding fathers. And he added these comments on page 177. The design on the pyramid side is related to the old mysteries. What he was saying was that these symbols on our dollar bill are related to the ancient worship of the ancient mystery religion. And that America does have a secret destiny. This is more completely discussed in my four-hour DVD set entitled America's Secret Destiny, Evidence that America's Founding Fathers Planned a Secret Future for America. This DVD has been posted on the Internet, and I believe it is simply stated so that the viewer can easily see what this nation's future is. This statue is found in my hometown of Tucson, Arizona and is of Father Eusebio Kino, an Italian Jesuit missionary. By the time of his death, he had established 24 missions in Latin America and the United States. He established a beautiful mission south of Tucson called San Javier del Bac, and that is why his statue is displayed here in Tucson. Perhaps the most famous displayer of the lion's paw symbol was Napoleon Bonaparte 
the Emperor of France. Volume 3 of the four-volume book entitled 10,000 Famous Freemasons states that he was a member of the Masons, as were his four brothers. So that could be the reason he displayed the lion's paw. But there might be another reason. It could be that he became an initiate of the ancient mystery religion, and as such, he was taught about the use of the lion's paw as a way of letting other initiates know that he was one as well. I have read reports that claim that he was a member of the Illuminati, the secret society created in 1776 by Adam Weishaupt. But this has been difficult to verify because if he was, the traditional historians of the day probably would not have revealed that fact. This drawing of Napoleon accompanied an article that questioned whether or not he was poisoned, but modern science has recently discovered that he was not. This report comes from a website on the internet called ancientcode.com, but this story has been repeated in numerous other websites and books. The website said this about Napoleon's desire to spend a night in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid of Giza, the one built by Khufu. Napoleon spent around seven hours inside the king's chamber. He came out at dawn, pale and frightened. When his most trusted men asked him what had happened, Napoleon replied, Even if I told you, you would not believe me. Then the website finished with this thought. Whatever Napoleon experienced is a secret that he took to his grave. So we do not know for certain what happened to Napoleon in that chamber, but it could be that he learned the secret of the ancient mystery religion. And that is the reason he is shown giving the lion's paw. This photograph is of Annie Besant, the only woman I have found so far giving the sign. She was the president of the occult, meaning hidden or secret, Theosophist Society, founded by Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, a believer in Lucifer, also called Satan, the devil. It is quite certain that Annie was also a believer in this being called Lucifer. This is a photocopy of page 107, taken from the book entitled Freemasonry Exposed, written by Captain William Morgan, reportedly a Mason for 30 years. The book was published in 1826, and it contains the actual rituals of certain of the degrees of the Masonic Lodge. The drawing on the right side shows that the lion's paw in the red rectangle was an official Masonic symbol back in 1826. This photograph of Lieutenant Elisha Hunt Rhodes is from a 1993 book entitled Freemasons at Gettysburg, a major Civil War battle by Sheldon A. Munn. The caption above the photograph inside the book said that Lieutenant Rhodes was a member 
and worshipful master, meaning he was the equivalent of the lodge president of Harmony Lodge Number no. 9, Cranston, Rhode Island. He was also the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Rhode Island in 1892 to 1893, meaning he was the equivalent of the president of all of the Masons in his state. Although the lieutenant is concealing his lion's paw inside his uniform jacket, this is still an important picture because it connects even the concealed form of displaying the lion's paw to the Masonic Lodge. Confederate Captain Henry Wurz was the commander of the notorious Andersonville prisoner of war camp during the Civil War. With over 12,000, 12,000 northern prisoners dying while under his watch in 1864. Wurz was held responsible for their deaths and put on trial for war crimes. He was found guilty and sentenced to hang in Washington, D.C. on November the 10th, 1865. And he was photographed giving the lion's paw symbol. General George Crook led General George Custer be the first to lead his troops into the Battle of the Little Bighorn on June the 25th, 1876, even though General Crook knew that the Indians had as many as 3,000 braves ready to battle him and his 265 troops. I believe that this was intended to make certain that Custer would not survive. I explain why a conspiracy decided that General Custer must not survive the battle in my DVD entitled Jesse James, the Famous Outlaw, Lived to Be 103. I discuss how the people who run America feared that the popular general would run for the presidency in the election of 1876 and that they felt that they could not control him should he be elected. And the next picture shows the reason that General Custer was murdered. This is Rutherford B. Hayes, who was elected as president in 1876 and served one term in office until 1881. And here he is shown giving the lion's paw symbol. He is not listed in the book entitled 10,000 Famous Freemasons, so he is obviously showing that he was a member of the ancient mystery religion. That means that he was the choice of the unelected power that runs America and not General Custer. French sculptor Frederick Auguste Bartholdi was the creator of the Statue of Liberty, and it was formally presented to the city of New York on July the 4th, 1880. Even Karl Marx, the so-called father of communism, displayed the concealed lion's paw in this photograph taken in about 1848. While there is no direct evidence that he was a member of the Masonic Lodge, there is evidence 
that he became a worshiper of Satan while in college. This is a book written or entitled Marx and Satan, written by Reverend Richard Wormbrand in 1986, and it provides the evidence that Marx was born of Jewish parents, became a Christian as a young man, but later joined a satanic cult when he was in college. This cult was led by Joanna Southcott, a satanic priestess who claimed to be in contact with the demon named Shiloh. Later, the evidence indicates that Marx was a member of his organization that was a direct descendant of the Bavarian Illuminati. This is the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, whose published works, according to the Wikipedia, have exerted a profound influence on Western philosophy. This source states that his father was a Lutheran pastor. But it appears as if young Friedrich did not absorb the, the message of Jesus. In his book entitled Daybreak, published in 1881, he began his campaign against morality by proclaiming that God is dead. God is dead. For the sake of the purists, this book is still exerting a profound influence on Western philosophy as it is being reprinted by Cambridge University Press in England in a second edition of November 13, 1997. But by his display of the lion's paw symbol, young Friedrich is acknowledging that he too was aware of the ancient mystery religion. Vladimir Lenin was the brutal communist dictator of Russia and the originator of the communist revolution of 1917. As you can see, he is displaying the lion's paw. This is Leon Trotsky, the communist who assisted his fellow communist Vladimir Lenin in establishing the communist government in Russia after the revolution that started in 1917. After Lenin died and Trotsky was exiled, the communist government of Russia was taken over by the brutal dictator Joseph Stalin. These two photographs show him giving the lion's paw symbol. Volume 4 of this book does not list him as being a member, so it can be safely assumed that he was admitting that he was an initiate of the ancient mystery religion. Lenin and Stalin together were responsible for the murder, the murder of over 40 million, 40 million Russians in the bloody communist revolution that started in 1917. And here are pictures showing these two mass murderers giving the lion's paw symbol. These are two photographs of John Wilkes Booth, the assassin of President Abraham Lincoln 
1865. They show that Mr. Booth was a member of the Masons, but it is also conceivable that he was an initiate into the ancient mystery religion. He was also a member of another secret society known as the Knights of the Golden Circle. This photograph is of the two famous outlaws, Jesse James on the left and his brother Frank on the right. This picture is obviously on the cover of this book written about the family of these two outlaws. Jesse is giving the symbol of the Knights of the Golden Circle, the group funded by the European International Bankers to start the Civil War in America. He later became the national leader of this organization. Frank is shown giving the lion's paw because he was a member of the Masonic Lodge. Jesse James later became a 33rd degree Mason by invitation. Civil War General Tecumseh Sherman was a northern general well known for his march to the sea in the south near the end of the Civil War. It was called a scorched earth policy, which he and his troops inflicted on the south near the end of the war. Volume 4 of this book does not list him as being a member, so if this is true, then this photograph shows him giving the lion's paw as a sign of his being an initiate of the ancient mystery religion. History has recorded that Frank fought with the rebel force called Quantrell's Raiders, led by William Clark Quantrell during the Civil War. And William Clark Quantrell was a 33rd degree Mason by invitation. And that Jesse fought with Bloody Bill Anderson, described as a lieutenant of the parent Quantrell's Raiders. Bloody Bill in this photograph is shown giving the sign of the Knights of the Golden Circle. This is a picture of Alan Pinkerton, the founder of the famous Pinkerton Detective Agency, and he is shown giving the lion's paw symbol. He is not listed in this book, so it must be that he was an initiate of the ancient mystery religion. That photograph of Mr. Pinkerton was taken from this picture of him with President Abraham Lincoln and an unidentified Union officer. Both of these men are shown giving the lion's paw symbol. You will notice that it appears as if the president is totally unaware of the two men giving the sign. This is another picture taken around the same time as the first. And once again, President Lincoln appears to be totally unaware of the two individuals displaying the lion's paw symbol. And here is a drawing of the president being shot by John Wilkes Booth. Here shown giving the lion's paw symbol. One can only wonder if the president had paid more attention to the dangers inherent in those who show their involvement with the lion's paw symbol, he might not have been assassinated by those who give 
the lion's paw symbol. Salmon P. Chase was the Secretary of the Treasury in President Lincoln's Civil War cabinet. Mr. Chase is not listed in this book, so if he was not a Mason, he must have been an initiate of the ancient mystery religion. Mr. Chase was able to get Congress to create a private, I'm sorry, a temporary privately owned central bank during the war that had the power to create money out of nothing and then loan it to the northern government at interest. He is the individual that the Chase Manhattan banks are named after, and he has been photographed showing that he was an initiate of the ancient mystery religion. This is a photograph of Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan, from the back cover of his book of essays entitled Satan Speaks, Giving the Lion's Paw. This is the first of two pictures of some other contemporary individuals, the English rock band called The Beatles. It seems to have been taken when they were younger, but more importantly, it shows that at least two of them had learned about the lion's paw. Paul McCartney and John Lennon are clearly giving the lion's paw symbol. And this is the second photograph apparently taken when they were a little older. In this picture, only Paul McCartney is shown giving the lion's paw. Neither of these two Beatles are listed as being members of the Masons in this book. While I'm discussing the Beatles, there are two more examples that confirm that the group seemed to know about the ancient mystery religion. This is a picture of their 1967 album entitled Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. This album has been called, quote, the most important rock and roll album ever made, end quote. It featured a collage of pictures of, quote, some of their favorite celebrities, end quote. And I would like to discuss two of these individuals. The first is Aleister Crowley, called by the English popular press, the wickedest man in the world. He was a writer in the occult, meaning one believing in a hidden religion. When Mr. Crowley went to Egypt in 1904, he claimed he had been contacted by a supernatural entity who dictated a book to him. He wrote it down as he was instructed and then had it printed into a book form entitled The Book of the Law. The Book of the Law. I would like to quote several brief passages to show you exactly what this man was asked to write. Crowley starts with this brief explanation on page 9 of what will follow in his book. This book lays down a simple code of conduct. Do what thou wilt. Do what thou wilt. There is no law beyond do what thou wilt. All events are equally lawful. This is teaching that there are 
no moral absolute. It is teaching that all men should be free to decide for themselves what is right or wrong in their own mind. If you want to murder, you are free to murder. If you want to rape, you are free to rape. If you want to plunder, you are free to plunder. This is what Crowley meant by his new code of conduct. The following are briefly some of the thoughts dictated to Mr. Crowley by this being. Take your fill and will of love as ye will, when, where, and with whom ye will. Notice that you will not need the consent of your partners. It says, take from whom ye will. That means that you can take your partner even if they do not give you permission. So if you want to rape, you will be free to rape. This code of conduct certainly would include love with a member of the same sex because it says, take with whom ye will. The being continued. Lust, enjoy all things of sense. I believe the being was granting man the right to enjoy psychedelic drugs and other things of sense. It appears as if a lot of people have read a book of the law. But the following words are the most explosive that this being instructed Crowley to write. I will give you a war engine. With it ye shall smite the peoples, and none shall stand before you. Trample down the heathen, kill and torture. And then the being identified himself with this name. I was the splendorous serpent. The King James Version of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 refers to a being that showed up in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were created. He appeared to them as a serpent. He appeared as a serpent. And the serpent had a name. Satan. Satan. The name of the serpent. So it appears as if Aleister Crowley had an experience with the being known as Satan who asked him to write a book entitled The Book of the Law. And that book instructed the reader to kill and torture. And the Beatles believe that Aleister Crowley was one of their favorite celebrities. And this is the second individual shown in the collage on the album cover that I would like to bring to your attention. This is, of course, Karl Marx, once again, the so-called father of communism. This man's writings on his communist theories have resulted in the murder, the murder of multiple millions, multiple millions of innocent civilians after they were made public. And this is a repeat of his picture 
giving the same symbol as two of the Beatles. And the Beatles thought that he was one of their favorite celebrities. Now, the last three examples of the lion's paw are rather disturbing. This is the first of those three. Time magazine of February the 17th, 1986, featured this portrait of the Christian televangelist Pat Robertson, clearly giving the lion's paw. This magazine was printed during Reverend Robertson's candidacy for the presidency of the United States. Reverend David Weber of the Southwest Radio Church is a fellow member with Robertson in an association of his fellow Christian radio and television broadcasters. He told his listeners on his nationwide radio broadcast that he met Reverend Robertson at a convention of this organization and directly asked him about this cover with a copy of it in his hands. Reverend Weber said that Reverend Robertson told him that he had fallen off of his horse and injured his arm or shoulder. That was Reverend Robertson's explanation for this unusual cover. I asked my family doctor about how he would treat an injured arm or shoulder from a fall from a horse, and he said that he would put the patient into a sling with instructions not to use the arm for a certain period of time. But Reverend Robertson has no sling. (laughs) But we must ask how many of the others who have been shown so far displaying the lion's paw have fallen off of their horse. I would hazard a guess that Karl Marx had never ridden a horse, so that could not be his explanation for being photographed giving the lion's paw. But there is another explanation about why Reverend Robertson was photographed showing that he was giving the lion's paw. An internet friend of mine sent me an email that he received on January the 20th, 2010, from Pat Robertson's Christian Broadcast Network, abbreviated to the CBN. It offered another explanation for the Time Magazine cover. The message read, Pat is not now, nor has he ever been a member of the Freemasons. About the cover, Pat had absolutely no idea that his pose had any special or hidden meaning. He objected, but the photographer insisted. Pat did not know at the time that there was some special meaning to the pose. But this photograph of him giving the same sign, again, seems to infer that he does know what the sign means and that he is knowingly showing it to the public. I will leave it to you to decide if he knows or not. This is the second disturbing example of a portrait or a picture of someone giving the lion's paw. It is a portrait of former President George Washington, the father of the nation of America. And it was found on the unnumbered page between pages 100 
and 101 of the book entitled George Washington, The Man and the Mason by Charles H. Callahan, published in 1913. The book was authorized by the auspices of the Memorial Temple Committees of the George Washington Masonic National Memorial Association, the organization that was apparently created to promote the past membership of President Washington as a Mason. This is, of course, a photograph of their building in Washington, D.C. The next two pictures are of the same individual, and they are both rather disturbing. This is the first of the two pictures, and it shows the future Catholic Pope, Pope Francis, who was to be elected on March the 13th, 2013. This picture must have been taken while he was a Catholic priest and before he became the Pope. But it is clear that he is shown giving the lion's paw symbol. This is the second picture, and it shows him wearing the traditional white garments worn by a pope. This picture was taken in December of 2015 during one of his weekly audiences in St. Peter's Square in Rome, Italy. I do not know of anyone who has documented the fact that the pope is a member of the Masonic Lodge, and if he is not, then this picture clearly shows that he is an initiate of the ancient mystery religion. Yes, these are rather disturbing pictures. This might be a good time to discuss something that is not directly related to the lion's paw, but it does have a bearing on the entire subject of the ancient mystery religion. This is the traditional logo of the Republican, the National Republican Party. It is a cartoon representation of an elephant and, of course, features the use of the three colors of the American flag, the red, white, and blue. Please notice that the upper part of the elephant contains three white stars with the traditional two legs down and one leg up. Of course, these stars are the same as are posted on the American flag with one point up and two points down. But something changed in the year 2000, just prior to the first year of George W. Bush's administration. And this is an example of the new elephant logo, showing that the three stars were turned upside down, with one point down and two points up. And to explain what this new form of the stars represents, I would like to prefer like to refer like to refer to the explanation of the stars in this book entitled History of Freemasonry and Concordant Orders, published in eighteen ninety one. This is my personal library copy of this book that someone gave me several years ago because they knew I was researching the Masonic Lodge. This is the title page showing that it is an official Masonic book published in London, England. I have put a border around the identification of who wrote the articles inside the book, and it reads, written by a board of editors. This is the first page of a listing of these editors. If you counted the names, you would find 
that there were 78 of these writers, and furthermore, they were all high-ranking members of the Masonic Lodge. This is page 49 of the book, and it discusses the upside-down star. And I have put the red rectangle around the pertinent paragraph. It reads, This star represents God, all that is pure, virtuous, and good, when represented with one point upward. But when turned with one point down, it represents evil, all that is opposed to the good, pure, and virtuous. In fine, it represents the goat of Mendes as shown inside the star. It is not surprising that one of the websites on the internet said that the goat of Mendes can be traced back to ancient Egypt. This is a modern statue of the goat of Mendes, also called Baphomet. It was originally created to be placed in Oklahoma City besides a monument of the Ten Commandments, but the state legislature removed the monument and the Satanists who created the statue had to look elsewhere. This is my personal copy of a book written by self-professed witch named Doreen Valiente, who put a drawing of Baphomet on her cover. This drawing was the work of Eliphas Levi, an occult writer in 1856. I have put a red rectangle around his signature in the base. It appears that it was the model for the statue created by the Satanists. This is the second page I would like to show you. It is numbered page 101 of this book. And these are the pertinent sentences inside the red rectangle. This is a close-up of that section. I will type out the specific sentences that I think are the important ones. According to the direction of its rays, this absolute symbol represents good or evil, order or disorder, or the accursed goat of Mendes. And then the editors encourage the readers to read page 49 as a supplement to this page. It is Lucifer. When it elevates two of its points, it represents Satan or the goat of the mysteries. And when it elevates one of its points, it represents the Savior, goodness, or virtue. And here are three stars that represent Lucifer or the goat of the mysteries, the goat of Mendes, and they are shown in the logo of the Republican Party. There is one more use of the inverted pentagram that I would like to bring to your attention. And that is in the Eastern Star, a Masonic organization intended primarily for women, but third-degree male Masons and their female relatives over the age of 18 may join as well. This is their official Masonic symbol, a five-pointed star turned over, representing the goat of Mendes, or it is Lucifer. And here is a photograph of the Eastern Star Fez displaying the symbol of Lucifer, the devil. I found this picture on Google Images 
and it says that the Eastern Star exposed as the Church of Satan. So someone else has told us the truth. And lastly, here is the Star of Lucifer, proudly displayed publicly on a telephone pole near you. Now I must ask the question, what does this change in 2000 or so tell us? It must have a purpose, and I think this is it. Let me mention that quote from Manly P. Hall that I've shown before as to what these symbols are for. Symbolism fulfilled the dual office of concealing the sacred truths from the uninitiated and revealing them to those qualified to understand the symbols. What Mr. Hall just said was that those who believe in this misreligion use symbols to let other initiates know that they are indeed members as well. So the changes in this symbol was to tell the initiates that the Republican Party was now totally under the control of the ancient mystery religion. What other explanation makes sense? The change was done for a reason, and I think this was it. The Republican Party was now totally under the control of the ancient mystery religion. I would like to end this presentation by asking and then attempting to answer what the lion's paw symbol is concealing from the people of the world. And the three quotes that follow might answer that question. Some of the Masonic leaders admit in their writings that there are two layers inside the Masonic Lodge. This is the first of a series of quotes that come from Manly P. Hall, a 33rd degree Mason. Freemasonry is a fraternity within a fraternity, an outer organization concealing an inner brotherhood of the elect. The Invisible Society is a secret fraternity dedicated to a mysterious secret. So one layer of the Masonic Lodge conceals itself from the other, and one of the ways they identify themselves to other initiates is through the lion's paw. The second layer inside the Masonic Lodge is busy, according to this additional quote from Mr. Hall. The ancient initiates are the invisible powers behind the thrones of earth. That means that Mr. Hall is claiming that they are the power behind the governments of the world. And men are but marionettes. Here he's writing about you and me. We are dancing while the invisible ones pull the strings. These initiates are part of a worldwide mystery religion that is 6,000 years old in every culture on every continent. Another Mason who has written on the subject of the second layer is Arthur Edward Waite, another 33rd degree Mason who wrote in his book entitled The Real History of the Rosicrucians. There are another secret society like the 
Freemasons. Beneath the broad tide of human history, there flows the stealthy undercurrents of the secret societies, meaning, I believe, the Masons and others, which frequently determine in the depths the changes that take place upon the surface. I would like to end this, this, this presentation with a discussion of an individual who represents the perfect example of all that I've covered so far, and that individual is Fidel Castro, the communist revolutionary dictator of Cuba, who passed away in 2016. I would like to provide you with four specific instances of his use of a concealed number 33 in his successful communist revolution that replaced an elected government with a communist dictatorship. Castro named his communist revolution that removed the government of the president of Cuba, Fulgencio Batista, the 26th of July movement. While I am here, I would like to discuss the national flag of Cuba. It also has a star, and you will notice that it is shown in the traditional way the star is depicted when it represents God, all that is pure, virtuous, and good, when represented with one point upward. Now look again at this picture of Fidel Castro and how the national flag is draped so that the star is shown with two points up and one point down. This might, of course, be a coincidence. But after reviewing the previous discussion of what the star represents, it might not be a coincidence. It might be that Fidel Castro did know what the star represents when it is shown with two points up and one point down. Let me continue with the discussion and we will see if he did. To repeat what I just discussed, Fred, Fidel Castro named his revolution the 26th of July movement. July is the seventh month of the year, and if you add in the number 26, you will total the numbers to equal 33, the number of the highest degree inside the Masonic Lodge. Number two, Castro's guerrilla army attacked the Moncada barracks of the Cuban army to start his revolution on July the 26th, 1953. July is the seventh month of the year, plus the numbers of the day at two, plus six, and the year of plus one, plus nine, plus two, and plus six, and you will total the number of the highest degree inside the Masonic Lodge, the number 33. Number three, Castro's guerrilla army rolled victoriously into Havana, Cuba's capital, on January the 8th, 1959, and claimed the government of Cuba. January is the first month of the year, plus eight, plus one, plus nine, plus five, plus nine equals 33, <laughs> the number of the highest degree inside the Masonic Lodge. Number four, Castro was sworn in as prime minister of Cuba, meaning he became the dictator of the communist nation of Cuba 
on February the 16th, 1959. February is the second month, plus one, plus six, plus one, plus nine, plus five, plus nine, equals 33, the number of the highest degree inside the Masonic Lodge. But you say, this is all a coincidence because there's no evidence that Fidel was a Mason, nor have I been able to find any known photographs of him giving the lion's paw symbol. And I say, that is exactly their response they are hoping for. Because this use of concealed numbers is only intended for the initiates of the ancient mystery religion. The average American sees the evidence of a conspiracy, but they do not believe it. So they let it pass without comment. And yes, I must mention that there was a human cost of the Cuban Revolution. A University of Hawaii historian by the name of J or R.J. Rommel made a study in 1987 of the number of deaths in Castro's revolution. He reported that it was a difficult task because no one kept records during the revolution. But he claimed that credible estimates of the number of the deaths because of the communist revolution ran from 35,000 to 141,000 with an average of 73,000. So now the world knows that there is a second layer of initiates in a mystery religion that is actually the secret power behind the thrones, meaning the governments of the earth. And one of the ways the Masons, one of the way the initiates, one of the ways the initiates conceal their involvement is through a symbol that only a few in the world will recognize. And that symbol is called the lion's paw.